This is the current federal tax developments for the week of October the 3rd, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're looking at a few things that happened in the area of federal taxes. More specifically this week, let's take a look at the fact that the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network released final regulations regarding beneficial owner reporting for small LLCs and corporations. Now, this is probably something that may sneak under your radar generally, but you'll want to keep an eye on it because I believe in 2024, you're going to get very excited, shall we say, about this if you have many clients who are small, closely held S corporations, S or C, or LLCs, no matter how they're taxed, be they disregarded, be they partnerships, be they, you know, taxed as corporations, uh, whatever they are, and they have fewer, they have fewer than 20 employees, or they have less, and or they have less than 505 million in revenue. Because if they do, then there'll be a report with a very expensive penalty for failing to file it in 2024. So we'll talk about that. The IRS also updated their frequently asked questions on their website for state and local recovery funds used for home purchases, various formats, and we'll talk about that. They added three questions and answers to that particular FAQ. And finally, we want to discuss the Hurricane Eon uh, relief that was announced by Treasury for Florida. Um, I have not yet taken a look at what's going to be coming for South Carolina. We assume it will be very similar, probably being published on Monday in that area and for other areas as the storm continues to push its way through to the extent there are significant impacts and you know hurricanes have a knack of spawning a lot of rain uh, well after they've ceased to have the whole major TV coverage in the landfall, we still have other storms and issues that come off of that. So we may be seeing more and more relief coming up related to Hurricane Eon. But let's talk about this uh, beneficial owner reporting rules for 2024 from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And this is final regulations RIN 1505-AB49. These were published in the Federal Register on September 30th. Now, these particular rules that we have are going to be required to have most entities that are not large operating entities file a report with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. This is really meant to make it easier for them to enforce and carry out investigations to determine who actually owns whatever type of operation may be being carried on or less than, shall we say, uh, above board reasons, criminal and enterprises, etc. This is one that kind of law enforcement pushed for this. This was part of the Corporate Transparency Act that was passed a couple of years ago. We've had these proposed regulations out. Now we're getting ready to go forward with we now know when we will be reporting, even if we don't yet have a copy of the report we'll file. Now, the most important thing to note here is we're, we're used to small companies getting exempted from various programs. You know, you don't have to do things. If you're small, you get the break because Congress likes giving breaks to small businesses. It, you know, it, it helps them run for re-election. It's useful from that standpoint. But in this case, 
that would effectively defeat the purpose. Again, they're trying to get on the record shell entities or establish that these shell entities failed to file reports to identify who actually owned something or filed false reports. So because of that, they can't really exempt small businesses. So what's going to happen here is generally uh, the companies that have to report under this are going to be, for the most part, closely held corporations, LLCs, or anything else formed by filing with the Secretary of State or similar office in the state in question. Here in Arizona, it would normally be uh, filings with some Secretary of State issues. Some issues here will be with the Corporation Commission, but same difference. Now, large operating companies are exempted because we don't really care. Walmart is not a shell company, right, that, that's, uh, that's running these shell operations. So we don't really care about these like large publicly traded companies or just large operating companies in general. So in essence, you don't have to file this form and report your beneficial owners if you employ more than 20 full-time employees in the United States, you have an operating presence at a physical office within the United States, and you filed a federal income tax information return in the United States for the previous year demonstrating more than $5 million in gross receipts or sales. And there is a definition of what will qualify for gross receipts or sales for this purposes. Now, obviously, smaller businesses, let's say like, you know, maybe your accounting firm, may very well have less than $5 million in revenue and less than 20 employees. You know, most, I'd say, uh, accounting firms in the U.S. are very small. In fact, the largest number are pure sole proprietors that operate on their own. Now, if they're not, if they don't have an LLC around them, they wouldn't have to file. But if they do have, let's say you had formed a PLC in Arizona, single member PLC told your accounting firm, you are going to have to file for this purpose because you're probably going to meet the requirements for doing this. So you need to be a little careful. Also means that those LLCs that may have been formed to hold a single piece of real estate would also end up having to file under this program. Now, we're going to have initially, we're going to have initial reports that are going to be required under this rule. And generally, uh, initial reports will be required for, so any domestic reporting company created before January 1st of 2024, and any uh, entity that becomes a foreign reporting company before January 1st, 2024, will need to file their initial report no later than January 1st of 2025. This becomes our deadline. Right. For entities created after that date, they will only have 30 days with which to report. So the bottom line there is going to be when your client goes out and forms a new entity, as part of the entity formation process, they are going to file this document you know, with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And any entity becomes a foreign operating company on or after January 1st, 2024, shall file a report within 30 days of the earlier the date on which it receives actual notice that has been registered to do business or the date in which the Secretary of State or similar office first provides public notice, such as through a publicly accessible registry that the foreign reporting company has been registered to do business. And any entity that no longer meets the criteria for an exemption, and there are other exemptions besides the large operating company exemption, but for the most part, they're much more narrow. So we're going to talk mainly about that category. 
as the one we're going to worry about. But if you fail to meet the exemption, so let's say you drop below, you're not going to have 20 employees. Your revenues drop below 5 million, then you're also going to have 30 days after the date it no longer meets the criteria. Now, for obvious reasons, that means that for most of us who are in public accounting, uh, you know, in a in closely who work with small closely held companies, we'll have if at least some, if not most, of our business entity clients will have a report to file in 2024 under this criteria. Now, the report will have the name, legal name of the reporting company, any trade name or doing business as the name of the reporting company, and a complete current address of the company. Uh, you know, the state, the state, tribal, or foreign jurisdiction of formation for the company, and if it's a foreign reporting company, the state or tribal jurisdiction where the company first registers, and the Internal Revenue Service taxpayer identification numbers, which could be the EIN, ITIN, etc., that could be required. You're also going to have to report for every beneficial owner, and we'll get to what those are here shortly. Uh, but for every beneficial owner, you're going to have to report the full legal name of the individual, date of birth, a complete current address of that individual, and a unique identifying number in issuing jurisdiction. Right? These will give us various options there uh, from one of the following documents. A non-expired passport of the U.S., a non-expired identification document issued to the individual by a state, local government, Indian tribe, a non-expired driver's license issued by a state, or a non-expired passport issued by a foreign government. And an image of the document from which that unique identifying number is obtained must also be submitted with this form. So the question becomes, who in the world is a beneficial owner? Well, a beneficial owner for this purpose is somebody who has a more than 25% ownership interest in the company or who has what's called substantial control, which will be, uh, by definition, officers, um, certain other parties involved with it. You know, it's broad-based because, again, the, the concern is, from law enforcement standpoint, that you're going to play hide the owner. And so they're going to have a very broad definition of who would be reported as a beneficial owner of this enterprise. So expect there may be quite a few people doing this. Now, the other nasty part about this is the penalties. There is a $500 per day civil penalties for willfully providing, attempting to provide false or fraudulent or willingly failing to report or provide an update report. So, by the way, yes, when anything changes, you must provide an update report within, uh, I believe, the final regs made that 90 days of the date it happens. So if we change ownership and we get now a new 25% owner, we have to update that information with FinCEN on a very timely basis. So essentially, just believe you do it as far as we go. So the penalties are $500 per day. And if you're convicted of willfully failing to file this report or willfully providing false information, a criminal penalty of not more than $10,000, imprisonment of not more than two years or both. Now, there will be a safe harbor for persons acting in good faith to correct inaccurate information submitted within 90 days of the inaccurate report, but that's a very narrow exception. Now, let's think about the reality of this reporting. Whether you like it or not, if you're in tax reporting, 
you're probably going to be the party that gets stuck working with clients on this issue. While it is possible legal counsel will get involved, generally they don't tend to like to fill in forms. That's not their job in their view. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised that this gets passed down to the tax filing, you know, whoever's assisting the tax filing. Other catch is obviously attorneys would need to and hopefully will reach out to their you know, clients who, for whom they formed entities and you know, inform them of this requirement. But I would certainly get ready and you know, make sure your clients are aware this is coming. I would say currently this is not a tax issue. We're watching it. Uh, you may need to file. We certainly will see you know, what may make sense. You file, you know, how you're gonna file it. Maybe perhaps in the future, you know, are we gonna end up stepping in to help you file this thing? Or is your counsel going to step in and do it? We just need to keep an eye on it. But it is coming and need to be aware of this. Now, I realize 2024 seems like, well, wow, that, that's way out there. Well, it's not really, first thing. 15 months from today, we will be sitting at the start of 2024. So it will be here faster than you might expect. Uh, so I, I wouldn't necessarily put off worrying about this way into the future. My guess is you'll start to hear things about this in the latter part of next year. We'll start seeing some documents and some letters go out. So you probably need to be ready for it. Secondly, yeah, you need to help make some decisions what's going forward and also inform your clients about the fact that this issue is coming, especially those who, you know, you know, if they formed an LLC to hold their rental property for a residential rental, they got five residential rentals, each one of which is an LLC, it might not occur to them that they will be a reporting entity and every one of those will count, but they need to be aware of that. So, you know, keep them up on that issue. Next up, we have the IRS updated their frequently asked questions for state and local governments on the taxability and reporting of payments from coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds. This is basically fact sheet 2022-36. And the updates, which added three questions at the end, uh, went, into, went into effect, or I should say, we were released on the 28th of September. Now, there are three questions they go to answer here. The first one asks in question 15, I'm an individual, my state local government is using SLFR, that stands for, you know, the state local uh, recovery funds, to pay for some or all the down payment and closing costs associated with my purchase of a home under a program to support those negatively impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. If I receive such assistance under the program, must I include it in my gross income? The IRS answer in this case is no. The amount of the assistance is not included in gross income. It notes that these payments using SFLR funds are made by the state and local government to individuals from the general welfare of the qualifying individuals who are negatively impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, a qualified disaster. As such, they are considered disaster relief payments under Section 139 of the code and are excluded from gross income. However, payments made to or for the benefit of the individual are not treated as qualified disaster relief payments to the extent the expense of the individual compensated by such payments is otherwise compensated by insurance or otherwise. And they reference you to section 139B. So fundamentally it says, yeah, if you're, give, if you're giving these funds for the down payment, et cetera, closing costs, that's fine, not taxable. 
However, if that's duplicating funds are also paid to you, paid for via insurance, then yeah, it'll be taxable. So be aware of that. Question number 16 in this case looks at, in this situation, uh, what happens if the funds are used to pay premium mortgage insurance, PMI? This is question 16, and it's, quote, saying, I'm an individual, and my state and local government is using SFLR, SLFR funds to pay some or all the premium mortgage insurance with my purchase of a home. If I receive such assistance under this program, can I deduct the PMI cost paid through the program? Now, you may remember that private mortgage insurance payments are allowed as a deduction, right? We've had that. We opened that up during the real estate crisis. It's been scheduled to go out of the law every so often. But every time it's scheduled to go out of the law, Congress extends it again. So the question becomes, if, if those relief funds are used to pay PMI insurance, can I go ahead and still deduct that? Because remember, under the PPE loan program, you know, when PPE loan funds were used to pay for, you know, wages by a business, the business still got to deduct the wages. When you had that, you know, the period for which the SBA was paying, they were basically paying your SBA loan, you know, principal and interest, your small business association loan, you got to deduct that interest. So shouldn't you get to deduct this PMI mortgage insurance? Well, now we're back to, I'll say at this point, uh, Tax 101, what the former Treasury Secretary told us about the PP loans before Congress clarified that you could deduct those expenses. Nothing in the law says you can deduct those expenses. Those expenses were paid for using funds that you received that are exempt from taxation. As such, they will not be deductible. So you cannot claim that PMI insurance. Now, you may scream, this is unfair, this is horrible. Uh, no, first thing is law doesn't have to be fair. You haven't figured out, out about law, you really need to go back to your basic tax courses. The tax law is often not fair. Number two, Congress by statute made those other expenses deductible from the PPP loan proceeds and the amounts paid for under the SBA loan payment program, right? That was a statutory override of the normal program. There is no such statutory override here. So bottom line, this one not deductible, no question. This is not really a difficult question to answer. So be aware of that. I know that there'll be people, and I know I'm going to hear them uh, when I'm in courses saying, well, they can't do that. The others were this way. There's no way I'm just going to go ahead and claim it. Well, first thing is your client might think that way and your client does that without your assistance. Okay, they're likely to get a slap on the wrist and just a disallowance of the amount. But you as a tax professional, you're supposed to know better than this. And as I say, it took statutory relief for us to be able to claim the deductions for amounts paid with funds from PP loan proceeds or funds or the amounts that were paid by the SBA on our small business loan. Uh, we just don't have that statutory provision here. Finally, the, uh, the final question added, number 17, is asking about if you're the state or local government, do I have to issue Forms 1099 uh, for payments used for these purposes? Question 17, we are a state or local government using SLFR funds 
to pay for some or all the down payment and closing costs associated with individuals' purchases of homes. Do we have an obligation to file a Form 1099 or other information return with respect to these payments? And the answer from the IRS is straight up and simple, no. You do not have to do so. You rather, in fact, in this case, you know, a Form 1099 miscellaneous would be required if the payment constitutes income, right, to the party. But in this case, it doesn't. And for those of you watching on the uh, video version, yes, I just realized I forgot to full screen expand my slides. So you've been looking at that without that. Well, you're not going to get the full screen. We're there. Uh, in this case, it says, well, Form 10 installation, point of the payments would be required if they were income to the recipient. In this case, because the payment is not income, no Form 1099 miscellaneous or other information return is required to be filed with the IRS or furnished to the recipient. So bottom line, no 1099 filings. The IRS has been rather consistent that way. Um, their, their real concern is they don't want to be getting 1099s when in fact there is nothing taxable. And the party paying it should be aware there's nothing taxable. They're now kind of suppressing that in many cases. Finally, let's talk about Hurricane Ian relief. Uh, this was announced in Internal Revenue Service Newsly 2022-168 on September the 29th, stating Hurricane Ian victims in Florida qualify for tax relief, October 17th deadline, and other dates extended to February 15th. Now, there was some confusion when the first relief got done. Uh, you know, the president specified certain counties that are available in Florida for direct individual assistance. And a lot of the initial reports that you had on the Hurricane Eon relief said a couple of things because they were issued before the IRS, before Treasury put out their formal program. One thing to notice under Section 7508 Cap A, um, there was a provision added at the end of 2020 which specifically provides that if there is a major disaster declared in an area, that there will be automatic relief for certain items, including these filing deadlines, uh, for at least 60 days uh, from the date on which the disaster declaration states that the you know, disaster began, which in this case would be the beginning of the disaster payments, you know, would in essence begin on September 23rd and then goes through, you know, will go through the relief date. Now that automatically 60 day, therefore the list of counties got sent around. Later on in the day, after we had the FEMA announcement of the disaster declarations, we had the treasury announce its relief. Now the key thing to note is the actual treasury relief found on in that news relief is it says straight up, the IRS is offering relief to any area designated by the Federal Emergency Management situation. And now this includes those areas designated for, for basically for relief to be paid to state and local governments. It's also part of that. This means that individuals and households that, re, that reside or have a business anywhere in the state of Florida qualify for tax relief. Okay, take that right away anywhere in the state of Florida. That's much broader than just the areas that qualified for the, you know, most, you know, let's say 
the largest number of programs for individuals to recover from the disaster. So this coverage affects the entire state. You know, I don't care, you know, if you're, and you know, you're sitting there on the Florida-Alabama border, and you know, uh, well, if you're on the, you know, you're to the east side of that border, you're in Florida, you get this relief. You're just to the west side, you don't get the relief. You know, I remember staying in a city in I, and basically in Idaho a number of years ago, and actually staying at a location where literally if you walk two blocks, you are in the state of Washington. Well, in this case, they have to draw a line somewhere, so you're going to have the same sort of issue. Even if maybe you're in that position, you are like a block from the, from the border, you know, in Alabama, or you're in Alabama and a block away from the Florida border, it just matters whether you're in Alabama or Florida, whether you get this relief. So be aware of that. That's going to be your key issue that we're looking at here. Now, the specific relief that Florida gets is that it'll postpone most filing deadlines and payment deadlines starting on September 23rd through February 15th of 2023. That's file returns or pay any taxes that were originally due during this period. Now, that's payroll taxes will be different, and we'll get that in just a second. But this will cover the individual filing deadlines. That means an individual who has a valid extension to file their 2020 run return due to run out on October 17th will now have until February 15th, 2023 to file. Now, the IRS notes that this is not going to reduce your, you know, because tax payments were due on back in April, right, when you filed for your extension, you're still going to have interest running. You're still going to have failure to pay penalty running. You don't waive those. That, you know, the tax should have been paid. All we're waiving is failure to file uh, penalties in this case. So be aware of that in that issue. Now, as well, if we're going to talk about payroll tax and excise tax payments that were normally due, you know, in essence, it also applies. Now, okay, continue this on. It will apply to estimated tax payments as well. So those due on January 17th and quarterly payroll and excise tax payments normally due on October 31st and January 31st, 2023. Uh, business with original or extended due dates also have additional time, among others, calendar year corporations who 2021 extensions run out on October 17th. And tax-exempt orgs will also pick up the additional time if they're under extension to November 15th of 2022. As finally, penalties on payroll and excise tax deposits due on or after September 23rd before October 10th will be abated as long as those deposits are made by October 10th. So that will get you out of those payroll tax deposit uh, deadlines. Finally, this describes additional uh, disaster loss options in this case. Reminding you that, of course, we now have a disaster in a federally, dis in a federally declared disaster area. So even if it's non-business losses, it will still be deductible for this year. And the other catch is you can actually throw this loss back uh, to the prior year. So once you figured out how much of a disaster loss you have, and there are obviously a number of complications there, but you essentially get to pick your year. Is it better for you to use 21 or 22 as your loss year for claiming disaster losses? 
Uh, the reason for that is it's assumed that since you suffered this disaster in 22, which could negatively impact your ability to you know, reduce your income for this year dramatically, you might be better off going back to the prior year where there was no disaster and being able to claim the loss in that year. So remind you of that. It also tells you, make sure you write the FEMA declaration number, DR-4673-FL, on any return claiming a loss. And the details for disaster losses are found in publication 547. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for October the 3rd, 2022. Uh, yep, we're coming down the final deadline for individuals now and C-corporations of calendar years are coming up on the 17th. Remember, it is the 17th because the 15th falls on a Saturday. So we have until the following Monday to get things filed. So lots of time to work with there, right? Sure, you got plenty of time to get all this stuff done. No problems. I'm sure you all got everything taken care of and everything filed away. And you don't have any clients that are still having to get you information they've been promising for months. But whatever it is, have a good rest of this month through the middle of the month. Uh, I'll actually begin to start really doing continuing education once we get past the middle of this month. That's when I start uh, doing sessions, doing some for firms, uh, where we do I do updates for firms on tax matters. Uh, also been doing some for some conferences I'll be doing. Uh, we'll also have some other uh, items and some regular old, plain old CPE that I'll be giving sessions on. So I look forward to seeing some of you there, seeing you whether in person or virtual. Should see a few more in person this year than we have the last couple of years, uh, the way it's been done. Uh, if you have any questions, you can, uh, questions, comments, send them to me at edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. You can also, I do, I'm a member of the New Jersey Society of CPAs, Arizona Society of CPAs, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington. I follow their Connect sites. I also follow discussions on the Idaho Society board. So, if you want to post issues or questions there on their groups, you can go ahead and do so. And if I think I can be of help, I'll try to post something there. Otherwise, uh, you know, like I say, hopefully you're having a good week. We're entering into October. Uh, here in Phoenix, we realize this is the last month that we, on a normal year, that we have any above 100 degree highs. Uh, technically, the normal last day with 100 degree high is, uh, I think, October 7th. We definitely have gone much later in the month than that. So we'll see where we're at with that. Uh, but it'll begin feeling a little bit more, more like fall to us. I'm sure for those of you in other parts of countries, it already feels a lot more like fall. In any event, though, we will see you next week when we talk about what's happening in the area of current federal tax developments.